Today we're going to start preparing for Christmas. Uh, we make many preparations at this time for Christmas presents, parties. But we're going to prepare ourselves spiritually for Christmas today. Because at Christmas, we celebrate. That's what Christmas is about. It's a joyous festival of people coming together to be happy, to be one, to be a family. But what we are celebrating at Christmas can only be understood properly when we first take stock of reality. And we need to take stock of a dark reality in order for us to truly celebrate at Christmas. And what I want us to do over the next three weeks is to think and to consider what it would be to actually celebrate Christmas in a way in which our hearts might be lifted, our faith strengthened, and our hope of Jesus' return even more certain than it was before we considered what Christmas meant to us three or so weeks ago. Often the celebration of Christmas is reduced to cheap comfort and sentimental cheer. And no wonder a lot of people who are struggling in life really hate Christmas because, you know, Christmas is about all this cheer and this sentimentality and they're just not feeling like that. People ask to gloss over their pain just to put up with a nice family day. People ask to suppress their deepest yearnings and feign thankfulness for a plastic massager from Uncle Joe. People are asked to ignore burning questions because they wouldn't want to make anyone uncomfortable. See, Christmas in many ways has been reduced to an exercise in being inauthentic. Just push out all the stuff that's not right, that you're not happy about, and just be happy for one day. However, the book of Isaiah won't let us think this way. The book of Isaiah is a gift to a world that's trivialised Christmas. Because the book of Isaiah taps into our pain. It doesn't ask for that pain just to be pretended away. The book of Isaiah stirs into our deepest longings and it gives us real answers to important questions. And so we're going to look at the book of Isaiah for the next three weeks as a way of preparing our hearts to truly, properly, authentically celebrate on Christmas Day. As many of you might know, the book of Isaiah is this majestic Old Testament book. Its focus is on God, the Holy One of Israel, who is high and lifted up in the book. Its message is a message of God's glory, his salvation through judgment. We see in the book that God is moving through history to save his people, and the scope of his salvation, the book of Isaiah, is the whole world, encompassing this world and the next. And there are three distinct movements in the book of Isaiah. The first movement, or the first section, is chapters 1 to 39, and there we see that God is purifying. The second section is chapters 40 to 55, where we see God is comforting and consoling. And the last section is chapters 56 to 66, where God is preparing his people for 
the promise of salvation. And it's in this last section that Isaiah chapter 64 is located. It's in this section of preparation, preparation for a future salvation. There is promise of salvation, but in this section, uh, God mainly deals with preparing people. And we want to be prepared, and so that's why we're starting in Isaiah chapter 64. You might have heard from that first reading, that section from Isaiah 64, the whole chapter, that the chapter is in fact a prayer. If you want to open up to Isaiah 64, you'll see there. And in fact, the prayer doesn't start in chapter 64. It starts back in chapter 63, verse 15. And it's this incredible prayer. It's a prayer that might surprise you. Because it's a prayer that asks a question, a question of doubt. The question that Isaiah 64 asks is, can we be saved? And in fact, the prayer has a darkness about it. Because the answer to that question isn't that obvious. And that's what we'll see. This prayer has a darkness and even a sense of despair about it. Have a look at verse 12, Isaiah 64. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Where does this darkness come from? Well, the background to the prayer of Isaiah chapter 64 is seen in the previous chapter back in chapter 63. And here Isaiah is prophesying of a time to come, a time I think even beyond that of the exile. And this is a time that, well, it's, it's not like the good old days. It's not like the good old days when God was near. It's not like the good old days that we saw back in the Old Testament where God was revealing himself, what he was like, making promises to Abraham. It's not like the good old days when he was saving his people in the Exodus through Moses. And it's not like the good old days where he was turning the hard hearts of his people back to him and restoring them. No, this time that Isaiah is thinking about, this time there are no miracles what is present in this time are lots of enemies, strong enemies of God mounting up around his people. And God, at this time, God is nowhere to be seen. God is nowhere to be felt. Israel's sins have defeated them. And as a result, the enemies of God are gloating. Is this what you want? Is Isaiah's question. Do you want those who are opposed to you, who hate you, to gloat by the defeat of your people? This is what Isaiah is wrestling with. This anxiety, this despair. And then in the middle of him becoming worked up, chapter 64 verse 1, 
kicks in out of a sheer sense of frustration. Have a look. Have a look there. Oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Do you feel what Isaiah is feeling? Perhaps a whole chapter could be summarising that first word. It's not even a word. It's kind of like an Old Testament emoji. Oh, oh. It's an O of longing. It's an, it's an O of, this isn't right. I don't know where you are, God. What are you doing? Oh, that you would do something. Oh, that we would feel like you were close to us. There's a deep longing in Isaiah. A longing for God not just to be seen, but to act. And not just to act, but actually to be involved. And not just to be involved, but to be personally and directly intervening in the situation that Isaiah finds himself. Because in Isaiah's mind, nothing else will work. Nothing else will work. Notice the language there in verse 1, that you would rend, that you would, that you would split open the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would that you would do that, God. And if you were, if, if, if you were to come, in Isaiah's mind, that the whole fabric of creation would have to be altered, if you were. It's like, in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, it's like Isaiah's asking for the impossible. You know, that, that you would actually come I don't know about you, but often I think I get myself into the frame of mind where I'm so sure that God should save me. That's distinct from I'm very sure that God will save me. I think we should be sure about that. But sometimes we confuse that with the fact that God should save us. Here, in the book of Isaiah, we're reminded that salvation that we celebrate at Christmas is not something that is our right. Do you think God would be loving if he was not to save us? The answer is yes. He would be still loving if he was not to save us. Isaiah is prophetically caught up in this unexpected, undeserved idea of God coming. And it's like in this chapter he's imagining and dreaming kind of in a prophetic way. And if, if you did come, God, if that, if that ridiculous idea were to come true, it would be like this, verse 2, that the mountains would tremble before you. And when... Fire sets twigs ablaze and would cause water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and mountains trembled before you. See, if God were to come, in Isaiah's mind, he would come with destructive and transforming power. And his coming is not just powerful. His coming is unexpected. 
And so at the end of verse 3, we have Isaiah in this desperate situation. God's enemies have risen up. His people are under threat. His enemies mock him and he just begs God to come. To come directly. To come into his life. To come into the lives of God's people. It's desperate. But there's a sense in which it's uncertain. It's uncertain here that he would come. Here it's a prayer of Isaiah for God to come. It's not a prophecy at this point that he will come. Because you have a look as the chapter unfolds, this, this longing, this deep hope that God would actually come into Israel, come into the life of his people, this, this longing turns quickly, it turns quickly there in verse 5 to 7 to lament. Basically, Isaiah admits he's in a pathetic situation. Have a look there in verse 5. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. See, Isaiah starts to own the fact that he and his people are the ones who have sinned. He doesn't blame the nations or God himself. And here I think this is a a very important reminder to us. Um, I've got a journal uh, and um, I'm very particular about the kind of journal that I use and I love turning over to a fresh page. I remember in primary school, you know, when all your maths from the previous day, which mine was atrocious, was on the previous day, you turn to the next page and it was a new day. That's what I think so often we're like. We want to close the book on the previous days and we want to open a new, fresh page, a new page of opportunity, the new me. Got to give it a go. But that's not how Isaiah sees us. We're not turning over fresh pages every day. Have a look there in verse 6 how he sees us. He sees us as unclean paper. We're like an unclean leper, defiled, contagious and decaying there in verse 6. Even at our best moments, we're not as good as we look. The best we do, on our best days, verse 6, those acts to God are like filthy rags. See, it's not just our sin that's the problem. It's all our attempts at good works as well. We have this unconscious and disordered impulse to sin. You know, even when we're trying not to sin. Verse 6, our vitality fades like, you know, like a cut Christmas tree in January. You bought it, it's fresh, it smells beautiful sits out the backyard, going brittle in the summer heat. That's us, Isaiah says, brittle and depleted. And fourthly, there in verse 6, we're controlled by our sin. Our true selves overrun us. 
And you and I need to be delivered not from others and all the harm that they might do, for which they do, but primarily we need to be delivered. We need to be rescued from ourselves. And it in fact requires courage to look into the heart of darkness because we are afraid that when we look into the heart of darkness, we might see ourselves there. And so at Christmas, we don't point to other people's sins. At Christmas, and as we prepare for Christmas, we actually need to take stock of our own sins, of the reality of who we are, of how we, each and every one of us, have turned from God. See, we're not entitled to Christmas. There's a little language at the moment around entitlement, rights. We're not entitled to Christmas. Verse 7, For you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. That is our entitlement. That is what we deserve. In order for us to understand Christmas, in order for us to truly celebrate We need to start in the darkness. The darkness isn't out there, the Bible reminds us here. The darkness isn't simply out there. The darkness is in here. And the language of Isaiah 64 is one of us facing and being confronted with the darkness and the reality of who we are. And I think it's often that we, even as Christian people, We're too quick to skip over that. We want to move to the celebration of Christmas and that God has come without realising the fact we don't deserve him to come. In fact, if he were to come justly, he ought to come for our judgement and our punishment. I know as Christian people we know and we're caught up in the celebration of Christmas, the fact that God has come, Emmanuel, God is with us. We're up to point three, the difference that Jesus hasn't made. I know we're caught up in that. I read this week of a woman who lost her husband in an aircraft disaster and the interviewer asked her if her view of God had changed. She said this, I found it intriguing. I don't dislike him, that is God, I'm not mad at him. I'm afraid of him. I thought that was interesting. A woman who's lost a man very dear to her. She's afraid of God. There's a reality about her statement there, isn't there? I don't know where she is or how much she knows of God. But I wonder if the question that she's asking is oh, it's great that you Christians celebrate that Jesus has come. That's fantastic. But what difference has that made? What difference has that made to my life? That would be a reasonable question for that woman to ask. Because what has changed since Jesus has come? I mean, yes, we know it was all bad in the Old Testament. There was sin, but Jesus has come. If Jesus said he was, if Jesus actually was who he said he is, why aren't things any better? 
the early Christians faced this crisis. In fact, even when Jesus was alive, even when Jesus was in the middle of performing miracles, as he was on his way to Jairus' house to heal his daughter, people were wondering where Jesus was. What was he doing? The early Christians faced the crisis of, where is Jesus? They faced it, in fact, as the Gospel of Mark was being put together in those 30 or 40 years after Jesus had died and was raised and ascended into heaven. He said he would return. The world hasn't improved. People were asking, where is this Jesus that you follow? And there was a confusion in the early church. And they kept telling themselves this story. It's from Mark chapter 13, verses 34 to 37. Jesus says this, It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he, sudden, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Hear what Jesus is saying? There's this household, the owner's gone, but the household would have no reason for existing without the master. And it's the expectation of the master's return that is the driving force behind what's going on in the household on being alert. And Jesus even anticipates this. He anticipates the problem that it seems like the master won't return. If he's not here now, where is he? Friends, what are we re- we're reminded at Christmas, that God has come. We celebrate that. I mean, think about this week, and uh, um, as I've read older Christians, the point that they make about Christmas, as much as it is joyous, and and it's right and good to celebrate the coming of God, we should also be mindful, not just of his first coming, but also of his second. His first coming was unexpected, but his second is not. His first coming is one of salvation, of him enduring our judgment. His second coming, he will not endure our judgment. He will execute the world's judgment. We need to be reminded at this time, as we anticipate Christmas, that what we celebrate is not our right. It's not what we are entitled to, but it is what God has done. And that's where our second reading comes into play. We saw that Mary couldn't quite understand the biological realities for herself and for uh, Elizabeth. And 
The idea of impossibility hangs over that reading, that reading of the angel greeting Mary, of the angel promising that she would give birth to um, the Son of God. The impossibility hangs there. And I think it ought to remind us of the impossibility of not just a virgin birth, but the impossibility of God himself coming, of God himself coming, of God himself dying, the impossibility, the unbelievability of the God who made the world entering our world and in entering it, dying in it, and in dying in it, rising again. You see, nothing that can save us is possible. It's only the impossibility of God himself coming, coming as one to look upon our darkness, coming as one to take our darkness. When we understand that, we can truly celebrate. And so I want, us to, I want to encourage us as we anticipate celebrating Christmas for us to soberly take an inventory of our own darkness over the next couple of weeks. Because I think it's possible that we have come to expect the impossible. We won't know the joy of Christmas until we understand the absolute hopelessness of life without God coming to us. God has come, and we in fact long for him to come again in return. And God is never at a loss to break through. We need him to come. And in the words of Isaiah 40, we need him to come. In Isaiah 40, this is where I leave, it says this beautiful image of a, a potter who shapes clay. And it's a beautiful image, I think, of what God has done and what God is doing in us. And perhaps over the next three weeks in particular. It's one of a potter intimately connected with that which he has made. And what is he doing? He's shaping. And he's reshaping that clay. See, God has come. He's come for our salvation. He's come for the forgiveness of our sins. But he's come to reshape us to shape us in his likeness such that we would be transformed into the image of his son. Let's consider the darkness of Christmas, the reality of our sin, the unexpected wonder that God would tear the heavens, come to us and come to us in salvation. Amen. Please stand as we sing.